There you go. So we're working through the New Testament right now, kind of slowly, and, and we're, we're picking through parts of it um, that, that, you know, I think is important we talk about. We're looking, and we inter- did an introduction into the Gospel of Luke. Last week, remember, Luke is, is uh, written by Luke, and uh, he also wrote the book of Acts. Between those two books, uh, 27% of the New Testament happened there, so Luke is a big part of the writing of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's very detailed in the way that he writes. He was a historian as well as a physician, so um, he took a lot of notes. He had uh, personal interactions with the Apostle Paul and um, with Peter as well uh, and and Mark. So um, he had a lot of insight into what was happening and did a lot of research in the process. And he picks up a lot of subjects that are important for us to sort of work through together. So... uh, in Luke, uh, let's, let's start by reading in chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Jesus went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, a voice of one calling, oh, John, sorry, this is still talking about John. He went in all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in every mountain hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. So uh, the first thing that's sort of talked about there in, that, in those verses are the ideas of repentance and baptism. So what's repentance? Um, in the Bible, the, the word means to change one's mind. And the Bible also tells us that repentance will result in a change of action. Acts 26.20 said, First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. So repentance is uh, it's a change of mind that results in a change of action. So it's, it's one thing to say, or you know, okay, well, I repent, but not change anything. It's not really repenting. Repentance is a, it's like a turn. It's a... It's a, it's a changing of direction. It's not doing that any longer. It's turning and doing a, a new thing. And so that's the idea behind repentance. When we repent uh, in, in the process of coming to know the Lord, it means we're, we're going to stop living the way we did and start living for Him. It's a, it's a change of action as well as um, something that we say. So, so that's the idea of repentance. It, it actually is a, it's a change that, that changes us, all right? So it's a change of mind that changes the way that we live. Also there, Luke talks about baptism. And um, baptism is one of two ordinances that Jesus instituted for the church, baptism and communion. Those are things we have to be doing. And just before his ascension, just before um, he left and we're waiting on him now, he said in Matthew that we were to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so those instructions tell us that, that the church, that's us, we're responsible to teach Jesus' word, make disciples, and baptize those disciples. And these things are to be done everywhere, all nations, until the very end of the age, which we've talked about here, is when Jesus comes back. And so baptism... Um, is important, e- even if only the only reason was that Jesus commanded us to do it. But 
There's more to it than that and why it's so important. So baptism was actually practiced before the founding of the church. The, the Jews uh, of ancient times would baptize proselytes to signify that the converts were cleansed, that, that they would go through this process. It was a picture of being washed in the process. Uh, John the Baptist, we just read about, he, he was using baptism to prepare, prepare the way of the Lord, requiring everyone, uh, not just Gentiles, to be baptized because everyone needed repentance. He was saying then that they were all a mess and they all needed to be cleansed. And, um, and so that's what John the Baptist was up to until Jesus came. And uh, baptism, it, it's, it's, it symbolizes a lot. It illustrates uh, in very dramatic sort of way, the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And it also uh, illustrates our death to sin and new life in Christ. And so uh, as, as the sinner, that's us, confesses, the, the Lord comes to Christ, we die to sin, and we're raised into a brand new life. That Colossians 2.12 said, Having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith, in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So when we get baptized, we're, we're connecting with what Jesus did. We're connecting with his death on the cross when we go under the water, and we're connecting with his resurrection when we come out of the water. And it's also a picture at the same time of us being cleansed and, and becoming new creations. And so it's a very, very powerful um, picture and illustration and symbol uh, of something that we've already done on the inside. And, and so now we're going through that process. It's also very um, important in the supernatural world. You're making a big statement uh, about whose you are. And so that's why we, we you know, tell people here they, they need to be baptized. When you come to Christ, you need to be baptized. We do baptisms pretty regularly. The next one is November 17th out of Bayah Honda. And so um, if you haven't been baptized, you may want to consider getting baptized then. Pretty important stuff for us to connect to. Uh, in Luke 3.21, as we read on, all the people were being baptized. Jesus was baptized too. As he was praying, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Now, um, Jesus, since he'd never sinned, technically... There was no reason for him to be uh, baptized, and yet he was setting a model for, for everyone in the process. That's what John the Baptist was saying, why are we doing this? And Jesus saying, it's right that we do this. And, and uh, so he was, uh, you know, as always, setting the, the way and the picture for us in how these things would happen. And those um, verses there in Luke are very important also because it's an instance where you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present at the same time. Jesus was there being baptized as he was praying. Heaven opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice, the Father's voice came, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So uh, as we've discussed here before at times, um, the idea of Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is uh, hard on our finite brains to grasp because it's an infinite concept, and our best illustrations are going to fall short of how it really works. But there's a, th this, these kind of occurrences happen in Scripture where you see evidence of the, the three-in-one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all, all happening at the same time. So that's one of those places. Uh, some people get really stuck on that. And uh, I just always tell people, 
you know, it's it's uh, because of verses like that. We know that's what's going on. But there is that finite, infinite. Some things are just infinite concepts of God that are beyond what we can grasp right at the moment. So uh, we can do our best, but we will fall short a little. I always tell people when they get really stuck there to um, to read the creeds, and the best creed is the Anan. Wait a minute, the Ananathi, Anath. Athanasian, yeah, Athanasian, yeah, that's it. Thank you. It's on there. It's on the sites. It's all over the place. They do a great job in that creed of sort of expressing the, the idea of Trinity, without being heretics. Because the problem is, as soon as I try and find an illustration that works, it becomes heretical because it falls apart because it's not infinite, the way they got it. Anyway, there you go. I got sidetracked. Back on track. He talks about the synagogues fairly often. Luke does. Luke four fourteen and fifteen. Jesus returned to Galilee. In the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So the the synagogues during the New Testament era um, would sort of parallel the church in that they were facilities that had been built for teaching and for worship. And so at the time of Jesus, the synagogues existed. People would go to the synagogue for worship and for teaching. And we know that Jesus would go. And uh, they would often invite him to speak, and he would speak and do ministry, and then they would basically chase him out of town. That's kind of how it went. But there you go. Uh, but you'll see that throughout the book of Luke. Oh, another thing you see as you read Luke is you'll you'll um, you'll start seeing some encounters with demons, demonic activity, and you might go, well, "What's that all about?" Demons are fallen angels. Uh, in Revelation 12. Nine, it says that the great dragon was hurled down, that's the enemy, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels are with him. So when Satan rebelled, uh, he was cast out of heaven and so were a portion of the angels, those who had decided to sort of link up with him. And, and those, that's the de- demons that we talk about now. Uh, uh, Jude 6 also mentions angels that had sinned. So, um, biblically, demons are fallen angels, uh, and uh, they chose to rebel against God. Now, also in Jude, we know that some of them are locked in darkness already, bound with everlasting chains. Others still um, have some ability to roam about. Uh, they're referred to as the power of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we'll pick that up in Ephesians. We've talked about that before. The, the demons follow the evil one as their leader. Um, we know from Scripture they do battle with holy angels uh, in, in attempts to try and thwart God's plan and hinder God's people, although they will not be successful at the ultimate plan. Um, <coughs> apparently, demons have the ability to take possession of a physical body. Uh, and so demonic possession happens, uh, and yet, here's the good news, it cannot happen to you if you're a child of God. Uh, you, you, you are covered in that process. However, you can still be oppressed by demonic influence, you just can't be possessed, which is pretty freeing, I think. Uh, and the power of God is pretty amazing, and there is demonic activity that happens in the world today. Um, you don't want to, some people, I think... Like with a lot of things, we run to extremes. 
where uh, some people think everything that's going on is demonic. I don't believe that. Some people think it's never a possibility. I don't believe that. Uh, I think that there's a measure of it um, and that you'll know it when you encounter it. <laughs> uh, you just will. And, and uh, it happens. Uh, but in Christ, uh, you, are, you, you have all the authority you need to deal with that kind of evil. Uh, and it certainly can't overcome you in any way. So you have no reason to be afraid of those things at any, uh, in any situation. And uh, just know that God is bigger than all those things. So there's a, there's a balance. I always, you know, when I encounter things, I always pray. And you, it's pretty clear if it's something beyond the norm um, that happens. But like I said, if they're believers, it, they might, you, you can be oppressed but not possessed, which is pretty freeing. Um, Jesus encounters lots of demons in his ministry, and uh, you'll see him deal with them, uh, and he certainly could, and uh, he would tell them to go, and they would go, and you, you have that same authority in Christ as a believer uh, now, and so that's, I think, really handy to know. Um, they're called lying spirits, evil spirits, unclean spirits through the scriptures, and uh, Remember the, the enemy and all the demons. So they're enemies, but they're defeated already. So it's they're just running their course. Uh, the only way I can think of that is um, the, the battle's won. So, it's, you know, an illustration would be like in, in World War II, after D-Day, the victory was pretty much assured, but the battle still went on for quite a while while the rest of it was finished. And, and so... That, that, that we're in this process. The enemy is defeated, uh, and and he's still running around trying to keep people blinded to the truth. And the the demons that haven't been bound up yet are, are out there trying to do those things as well. But it's just a matter of time, and the the Lord is far superior to all those things, and we don't need to be afraid of anything in the process. So we've got nothing to fear. Um, the Bible tells us to submit to God, resist the enemy, and we've got nothing to be afraid of. So First uh, John 4, 4, if you want a verse, greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. So you're good. All right. But it comes up. It's in the Bible. Not always talked about. Tax collectors. It's funny to mention them in the same frame as uh, demons, but they show up next. No offense to our friends in the IRS. <laughs> I should put somebody else's email up right now. Um, so let's talk about tax collectors. Luke 5, 27 through 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others eating there. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He didn't need to have a change of heart and mind, which was everybody. But uh, he's making a point. So... Uh, I've said this, um, but it's it's good to know why it was such a big deal. Tax collectors were hated by the established religious community for several reasons. Um, one, they took money from you, and nobody was happy about that. Um, secondly, they they worked for Rome, which was 
as far as the Jewish people were concerned, was the worst that you could be doing. But they, they were employed by Rome. You know, the, the Romans, the way they – so different conquering nations did different things. I told you, like, the Babylonians would go in and move everybody and put different people in. The Romans wouldn't do that. When the Romans took over a place, they conquered a city. They pretty much left it alone. They left whatever rulers, whatever ruling party was in there, sort of in there. You know, if they had any big rebels, they would get them out. They'd put an army around it, and then they would just collect taxes off of them, in, in effect, to support the army so nobody else could go and conquer them. And, uh, and so that was the setup in Israel. There was Herod, and those guys were kind of pretending to be rulers and had set up as puppet kings, but they were just in there to collect taxes. So these tax collectors came in, and they would collect money, and then they would give it to the Romans. So they were hated for that. They were hated for the fact that they overcharged. Uh, and so they all lived really well because they skimmed money off the top. The Romans knew that was happening. They didn't care as long as they were getting their cut, whatever. And, and so they set themselves out to be hated by the established religious community and everybody else. And so they were the worst of the worst. So it was tax collectors and sinners. So sinners were better than tax collectors. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst. Pretty much every generation finds some group that they label as the worst of the worst. But Jesus loved those folks. And... With Levi brings him into the with Matthew, he brings him in on board, and it's a major part of the whole process. So, um, so that's what's going on there. But you'll see them, and you know, if you wondered why they hated tax collectors, uh, that's what was going on. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Most of you know Zacchaeus because a wee little man was he in a sycamore tree. You know, that's what pops into my brain when every time. And he even mentions the fact that he was dishonest in the process. So you have those going on. All right, another topic that happens uh, here in Luke is the idea of fasting. Luke 5, 33 through 39. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment, so it's not an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, and the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, wants a new, for he says the old is better. Um, that whole thing is Jesus saying things are changing, and uh, th- there's a lot of things that you used to do that didn't um, you're doing them now for the wrong reasons and uh, you you think that they're something else than they really are but uh, they had uh, taken fasting to sort of a, a ritual point and you know getting brownie points for they thought for fasting and they would make a big deal everybody would know they were fasting and uh, they made a big sort of religious deal out of it so um, uh, New Testament there's nowhere in Scripture where we're required to fast as believers, but it does talk often about fasting and praying, and, and there are some benefits to um, uh, the occasional fast if you can do it medically, um, if you use the time to draw closer to God. Now, think about this. Um, 2,000 years ago, meal preparation in itself and the provision of meals was a huge job. It took big, you know, it's not like it just happened. You know, it's not like you could go microwave something like we do now and have a meal in minutes or call someone to bring it to you. It was a big part of the life uh, was the, the, you know, acquisition of food and the preparation of food. 
So if, if you were going to not um, partake in food for a period of time, what it would do is free up some time that you wouldn't have had previously, and you were to devote that time into hanging out with God. It was to be a relational thing. That's what fasting should still be. Sometimes people fast in order to try and get God to do something. That's not what's supposed to be happening. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Um, but it, it can be a, a really good experience, a biblical fast, if you ever are interested. And seriously, if you have any sort of medical things, don't, don't do that. But uh, without talking to a doctor, I don't want anybody going into some sort of coma because I said fasting was okay. A biblical fast basically was sundown to sundown. So uh, that's how it worked. So you, you would eat on, let's say, today. So let's just say we, we all just ate pretty much, most of us, right? So a biblical fast would mean you ate that, but now that's gotten dark. Or it's about, now it's dark out there. Uh, now you, you, you don't eat again until tomorrow night at dinner. And that's a biblical fast. You, that's how it works. So that would be the idea when you're reading about fasting. That was what most of them did. You're, you're, so you're kind of missing breakfast and lunch. Um, but you're doing it for the, the purpose of praying and taking that time and getting connected. So, uh, so that's a fast. If you've ever fasted, you know, fasting is it's, like, it's very interesting and, and uh, certainly worth the experience at some point. Fast for a day or three days or seven days. Or I've done all those things at some point. I know you probably can't tell now, but, but uh, it's funny. You know, I used to be a lot bigger than I am right now and, and a lot bigger. So a uh, larger person and all was well. But I would fast quite a bit back then, and nobody would ever believe me that I would fast. No, you don't. Yes, I do. But that's enough. We'll pick up. We'll pick up Luke six. I got some stuff here, but it's seven fifty-three, and I just left you on that one hanging. So that's good. If you're watching my video, thanks for watching. Come back and check us out next week, or come and visit us when you can. We'll see you soon. Bye.